welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton, your host. Today we have with us for the first time Matt Moss. He is the pastor of St. John's Lutheran Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome to the Godestine's Crown, Matt. Good to be with you, Jason. Yeah, it's good to have you. I we had some cancellations, and uh, I put out a a please help, and you answered the call. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's nice to get moved up from, uh, what is it, single A to triple A? I never know which direction those uh, minor leagues go. <laughs> yeah, it would be triple A. Uh, I don't know if we're triple A. Um, we might be just double A. I don't know. But well, We're not uh, MLB. No, we are not. No, we're not. Um, so thanks for thanks for doing this. We are looking at the gospel reading for Trinity, the the eighth Sunday after Trinity, it's Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23, and I will go ahead and read that in the English Standard Version. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, so context-wise, immediate or otherwise, uh, what do we have here? And uh, how might this help us to understand what's going on in the text and what our hearers might need need to get from it? Yeah, so Matthew 7, uh, and particularly these verses, are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus has been preaching from Matthew chapter 5 through this section, and then there's just a few more afterwards with the the necessity of building upon the rock. Um, The ESV Bibles that your people have will put a, a little section break in between verse 20 and 21, um, but they do really fit well together, and uh, maybe even verses 13 and 14, uh, will be extremely helpful. Verses 13 and 14 would be uh, the admonition of our Lord to enter by the narrow gate. Uh, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. I don't know if I would necessarily expand the reading for this Sunday, but I actually make it a point to reference verses 13 and 14 in multiple sermons throughout the year uh, because this is a very important thing that I that our people are are largely forgetting or losing uh, in this particular context it's helpful to it, it helps to answer why Jesus is giving this warning about false prophets uh, what's the danger of ravenous wolves and the uh, bad fruit from bad diseased trees well because many people will go to hell uh, and that's that's where I think we get a little lazy, complacent. Uh, maybe our hearers grow a little apathetic, uh, disinterested in theology, and that's dangerous. Uh, in fact, your your pastor is dangerous to you if you're not listening carefully and weighing or discerning what he's teaching. And uh, that's at the heart of this uh, this section, verses 15 to, to 23. Uh, it's not easy to raise Christian children. Uh, the 
the way is wide and easy and many are finding it. So I think we do have to be blunt with our people very often. And this Sunday, especially, uh, would be a, a time to do that, to remind them that the vast majority of mankind will be damned. Uh, we all know this anecdotally. We've had children who go to parochial school and maybe even weekly attendance at the divine service who still fall away. And even pastors who were sincere at their ordination vow and studied the word uh, as much as any of their parishioners, some of them give in to worldliness or despair of the gospel and shipwreck their faith. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is a real threat and danger. And when Jesus says, beware, as the first word of our lesson, uh, the hearer in the pew better wake up and start yeah. weighing and examining everything he hears from his preacher. Now, I think that's a good admonition for us to look at those two verses that you mentioned, because it seems evident throughout my ministry, and even to a certain extent in my own um, thinking, is that if we just if we just have the right inputs everything will be just fine. Almost as though it's kind of like a, a vending machine or it's automatic. And and that, that can um, engender an understanding that the way is easy. You know, if you just have these right inputs, everything's going to be fine, right? If you get the, the right macros, everything is going to be just fine. And it seems as though what our Lord is getting at is... Um, there are a lot more obstacles out there than you think. And it's not just, um, you know, good things in, good things out, uh, and everything's fine. There is, there is fighting, and it is difficult. Yeah, very, very much. And I think in this particular lesson, the danger is for hearers to think that Jesus is only talking about a threat to the pastoral office. And they get that, and they probably do support and pray for their pastors, knowing that they will face a stricter judgment. But the warning is particularly here because the hearers will be judged for what they believe. And simply saying, well, I got deceived didn't work as an excuse for Eve in the garden, and it won't work for you on Judgment Day either. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Anything else uh, context that would kind of help unpack this? Um, no, I'd, I'd say there's a few other passages, especially in Matthew, that'll help us understand some of the particulars, but uh, mm -hmm. we'll get to that, I, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of translation, there's one thing that I know that I would like to chat about, but, um, and we'll get there, we'll get there when we get to say verses 18 and 19 and then verse 21. Um, yeah. There is a the, the 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 bearing of fruit. The word to bear is the same thing for doing the will of the Father. And I'm curious what what that entails, or is that just a standard Greekism? Yeah, I've got that on my list too. I've got uh, actually three big translation issues uh, with this text, and uh, not that I would belabor the hearers with all of them, but you know, sure. as pastors, we need to be aware of these things and. Uh, so, yeah, my first one is actually the word uh, pseudoprophetoon, uh, the false prophet's word, is used a number of times in the New Testament, uh, including the false prophet of Revelation. Uh, mm -hmm. My translation issue is actually when I was looking at some of the, the Greek Old Testament translation occurrences of it. Uh, for in mm -hmm. the, the Hebrew, they, there isn't a distinction. It's just they, would, they use the word navi, prophet. Um, and so the, the pseudo-prophetane occurs once in Zechariah and a, a handful of times in Jeremiah, where just a quick glance at some of those, it's not exactly clear that we are talking about false prophets in all mm. of those cases. So just to be on guard if, any, if anybody's looking for uh, their Septuagint concordance and seeing these, I'm not so sure every one of the times that the Greek translators of the Old Testament decided that it was not a prophet, but a false prophet in view, uh, that they're correct in that decision. So just to, to be aware of that one. Yeah. So is that, is that a, um, a difference in the way of thinking for the Hebrew mind versus the Greek mind that they saw them all as prophets, but so they had an office, but they had misused it or some, 
something along those lines or? Um, not quite. I mean, they will, they just don't have, they definitely don't have the construct noun that pseudo profitane is. Mm-hmm. They will use modifiers and call them deceiving or li- lying prophets, just like you have deceiving and lying spirits. And so mm-hmm. a couple of the cases where this uh, pseudo profitane comes into the Greek, it is very clearly dealing with that. And that's the best translation. There are just a few other cases without getting into all of them that uh, was not readily apparent immediately that we should take it as false prophets. So okay. just to just to pe- remind people to not be lazy and uh, consult the Hebrew as well as the Greek if you're using the Septuagint. Okay. And the then, second so your translation next translation issue was uh, in verses 17 and 18, and even in 19 a little bit, the, the play on words here or the changing in the adjectives. Uh, in ESV, I think it said the, the healthy tree and the good fruit and the diseased tree and the, and the bad fruit. Um, and there's some, there's some interesting changes in words there. So especially with the healthy tree, it's not healthy, it's agathos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a word for goodness that is usually the more morally good word. And then uh, the good fruit is not agathos, but kalos, which is yeah. goodness uh, pertaining to kind of things being rightly ordered as they ought to be, very, you know, typically associated with beauty. Uh, so th- I think that's an important point that uh, if preachers have made that connection or have talked about mm-hmm. that word in other cases, uh, yeah. I think there's a little bit of overlap between this lesson and actually the Good Shepherd Sunday lesson, because I know that comes yeah. in there too. He's not the Agathos shepherd, he's the Kalos shepherd. Uh, and you'll have the, mm-hmm. the sheep and the wolves connection between this lesson and that lesson as well. Um, when you get to the but that's disease, an interesting point, yeah, because the um, so the Septuagint, when the Lord says after each creation day, you know, and it is good, he doesn't say agathos, he says kalos, right? Um, and I can't remember if um, if that's what Eve says, if she says agathos or kalos for the fruit off the top of my head, but there are a number oh, of occasions. The- yeah. When um so for example in the the um the judges, you know, they, they do what is Agathos in their own eyes, not what is Kalos. So there's some interesting plays on, you know, that orderliness and the, the things that, you know, God sets up and when man does it, it's a distinct thing. Yeah, and that that's reflected in another translation too, the uh the Peshitta, the Syriac of Genesis 1, does tov for each of the days, but then when you get to the end and God saw that it was very good, they use shafir, which is uh, beautiful. Mm. Oh, that's so, great. Uh, moving into the second tree, the, the diseased tree, the word for diseased is sarpon, um, and uh, and that's translated here by ESV as, as diseased. It does occur in Ephesians 4.29 as Paul admonishing them not to give in to corrupting talk. So it's the word corrupting there. Uh, and there's mm. definitely a connection between those two, even though it's, it's translated differently. Um, and then it, it's also just plain translated as bad in Matthew 12, also referring to trees. So same gospel, same context of describing the, uh, the quality of a tree in one case, ESV uses diseased, and in another, it uses bad. But uh, just to, and, and same in the parallels in Luke 6. Um, so yeah, just to know that word, and then also the uh, the fruit is poneru. It's evil, uh, not just bad. So you're, you're dealing with uh, uh, the healthy tree produces good fruit, but it's, you know, the agathos tree produces kalas fruit, and the sarpon, the diseased, corrupt, or bad tree, produces uh, evil. And I think we do want to use the strongest word possible. If you're not belaboring your people with translation idiosyncrasies, then don't, don't hesitate to use that word in your preaching of this text, that uh, we are dealing with false prophets whose end goal, their fruit, is evil. And that's why this isn't just, uh, okay, well, some preachers do some good things, some preachers do some bad things, some preachers preach some good things, some preachers preach some bad things. We're dealing with evil, uh, and, mm-hmm. and there is no room for that in the kingdom of God or on Judgment Day. Okay. And then, yeah, the final translation issue is the one that you noted with uh, the, the repetition of the word here, poieo, 
uh, seven times in this short lesson. Uh, now, poieo is a Greek word with a wide semantic range, and mm-hmm. a any given word does not bear all of its semantic luggage every time it occurs. So I'm not suggesting that we need to have the five cases where it's translated as bearing and the two that it's translated as doing uh, matching throughout this lesson. But it is something that the preacher who's doing his job of reading the Greek will recognize uh, occurring there in verses 21 and 22 for those who do the will of the Father and then the prophets being condemned who claim they did many great things in Jesus' name. Um, So without overrunning the implications of this semantic decision, I do think it helps us clarify one of the questions that's often debated, even just looking at a couple commentaries, there's some disagreement on this. And when I've discussed this lesson at circuit meetings in the past, there's always a debate. Is the fruit just the preaching of the prophets? Is it also the deeds of the prophets? Is it primarily the deeds, the works of the prophets? Uh, and I think the recognizing the the continuous use of, of this word does help unite these two sections, which, as I said, are separated by the ESV editors with a heading. Um, but also to give us a little bit clearer of the both and uh, mm-hmm. the 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 preaching and also the works. I mean, we can't get away with it. It does finish in verse twenty three uh, with ergodzomenai, workers of lawlessness, anomian. Right? It's not. I mean, there it makes it very clear that we're we're not just dealing with a poyao with a wide range of meaning. Here, it's very clearly the word for working, and they are workers of lawlessness. And that will be in their preaching, absolutely, and primarily, but also evil deeds do follow. So when you mean evil deeds, you mean the deeds of their normal, um, everyday life interactions, not not the um, the deeds that is are mentioned here, many money works or casting out demons. I just want to make sure, or, or are those included, that the work should be both the mighty works and the everyday mundane day in day out life of the prophet in yeah in the text itself it's very much the the uh the casting out of demons in his name and the performing of miracles in his name are obviously works beyond what is preached it's not mm-hmm. abundantly clear how those things would be working lawlessness I think maybe if we consider them in light of maybe the the churchly parallels of you know there is such there is kind of a lawless approach to baptism or absolution or even the Lord's Supper, uh, which maybe we can unpack later as well in, in application of this text. Um, mm. So there 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 is absolutely that, but we can't deny either that you know the gross moral misconduct is also something that grows out of this tree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that too may be something that you, the preacher, have to preach about on this Sunday. I don't know when you're going to have a better chance to preach and teach your people about the right use of their constitutional article or bylaw and removing a pastor for both false doctrine and gross moral misconduct. You can't really yeah. separate the two. And the first petition of the Lord's Prayer doesn't separate the two. Right, it is whoever <laughs> teaches, or, teaches lives or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. It doesn't yeah. matter if they're baptizing, preaching, exercising, or performing miracles in Jesus' name. If they're teaching and living contrary to God's word, they are profaning God's name. Mm-hmm. So here you might also bring in some of the verses from the pastoral epistles that talk about you know husband of one wife. Um, are managing his household well, you know, not a drunkard, not um, not greedy, those sorts of things. You might you might say um, these types of things will indicate whether or not they are prophets or not. Yeah, that that's a tough one from uh, the perspective of are you looking at the fruit or are you looking at the tree to determine the fruit. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I'm never quite sure which direction to start with there. And it's not just chicken or egg. We have very clearly here, it is the tree. It is, you know, if they are 
if they themselves believe in the re- in the true repentance for sin and faith in God's mercy for the sake of Christ, then both their teaching and their life will uh, will evidence that will be the fruit. And to the to the diseased tree, uh, those who do not believe that, who do not believe in a sincere repentance for sin uh, and and faith in God's mercy, they may be preaching libertine or antinomian messages or the universalism of today. I mean, the, the application of this text to the abundant heresies all around us is, is something that's going to be difficult to accomplish in any given sermon. Uh, and, and so maybe you don't even, maybe you don't get into the particulars, like looking at, you know, Luther's era, it'd be, you know, really quick and easy. You just, you know, blast the Pope and blast the the heavenly prophets and you move on. I think we've got a, a few too many to, to name individually in this case. So that's why I'd say you, you might just focus it more on uh, how they need to critically listen to you, their pastor, yeah. and, and weigh everything you say, because if you're wrong, it's damnable, right? You are, mm-hmm. you are danger to them if you are not preaching accurately. And, you know, if we, we never like preaching on like the stewardship lessons, because it always seems self-serving, but for the same reason, you can't avoid this text and warning your people that, you know, but by the grace of God go I, and if I go south, you better, you better catch it and preferably call me to repentance. But if I don't repent, if I'm recalcitrant and refuse to repent of my false teaching, if I persist in it, you have to remove me. And if I commit gross moral failure that has made it impossible for me to continue conducting my ministry in good faith, you have to remove me. For the love of Christ mm-hmm. and the love of the church and for the love of me as a sinner, you have to do that. And especially nowadays where it seems like in, in all church bodies, not just our own, there's a great, great misconception and question about what you do when a guy has disqualified himself from the office. Where can he serve in the church? Um, and so I, I think part of that question and difficulty that churches face uh, is because we we leave it in our constitution, but how often does our deacon council even look at that, let alone the general population of the congregation hearing and understanding why this is uh, essential to the ministry of the gospel within this congregation. Uh, if you if you never do that, then it it'll just devolve into you know a vote on whether we like the guy or not. So in other words, you're saying that you know part of what a pastor does weekly is not just to prepare them uh, for the gates of heaven, right? To prepare them for the final judgment, but also to prepare them to continually judge uh, what they hear and respond in the biblical manner that is put forth, so that they are not... They're taught, we just had this past week, um, we're recording this early, in uh, Trinity 4, The Judge Not. And, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about what what judgment is Jesus is telling us not to do and what kind of judgment he is telling us to make. And it, it almost seems like, you know, now we're getting the point of, this is the other kind of judgment that you sheep are supposed to make on how how to judge your preachers and what you should be looking for, not only for the benefit of you and your congregation, but also for the benefit of the pastor or preacher himself. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Well, let's get into some of the particulars or, or walk through the lesson because uh, it, it is a wonderful lesson and, and one that, you know, uh, I think I mentioned that at our church, we have two pastors. I'm the senior pastor and this is our fifth time going through the one-year lectionary, and I think uh, it's the first time I've actually gotten to preach on this text. Uh, so that that's exciting. I've I've gotten to listen to it as a hearer, listening to his faithful pastor preach it faithfully, and uh, invariably every year I'm thinking, oh, I hope I get this one next year. And mm-hmm. finally, the vacation schedule and preaching schedule works out that I actually do get it. So I'm uh, excited to to delve into the the verse by verse details of this. Well, good. Let's let's just start with um the, the the those first half, like 15 to 20. And um what is the sheep's clothing and how are they ravenous wolves? I mean, what is the image here that is being brought out and how does that 
translate into what you see from prophets? How how are prophets ravenous, um, and so forth? Yeah, um, and that's kind of the key, I think, to preaching this text helpfully to your people uh, is recognizing that we are dealing with a warning about false prophets. That should be where our focus remains, even though you get two very vivid images or metaphors. And I think the danger sometimes of preachers, especially with you know creative writing backgrounds, is to just run with the metaphor and you almost lose sight of the referent. And, mm-hmm. and the people may, especially if they're not listening very carefully or following, they walk away with a great sermon about trees and fruit or even about sheep and wolves, but they may actually forget what you were actually talking about, which is that false prophets do damn. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, th- that's where the, the, the imagery and metaphor comes in. And I think we want to focus on, on that. We are dealing with false prophets. You know, if a baker bakes and a banker banks, a false prophet prophesies falsely. A false preacher preaches false things. Uh, and the, the, to answer uh, that question about whether this is about the teaching of the preacher or the, the, the works and deeds of the preacher, which one is the fruit? Well, the prophecy is listed first in verse 22 when they're trying to justify themselves before God. So, you know, Absolutely, whatever we see in in the little metaphor with the the sheep's clothing on the wolves or the the trees and their fruit, first and foremost, we are dealing with their doctrine, but it is both doctrine and life. Uh, so th- the uh, the interesting thing about the sheep's clothing and the ravenous wolves is that every time you get references to wolves in the New Testament is in pastoral texts. Um, you get Matthew 10, where he sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, in that case, the wolves are not fellow pastors. They might be. But those who are receiving pastors uh, will either be ones who hear and, and follow and receive them as Christ, or they will be wolves who seek to devour them. Uh, Acts 20 is another case, and that's one of the epistle options for this Sunday, although not the historic one, um, where Paul, preaching to the Ephesian elders, flat out warns them that wolves will come in among them, among the pastors in the Ephesian churches. There will be wolves. Uh, And then John 10, which is the Good Shepherd Sunday lesson, uh, you have the hired hand seeing the wolf and fleeing. And, you know, just for allotting your own time in the sermon, I think it may even be better to maybe make a note to include verse 15 the next time you know, Misericordia Domini comes around and you're preaching on John 10 to reference this, you know, that mm-hmm. when the, the hired hand sees the wolf, well, one of the wolves could be fellow pastors, uh, right. those in sheep's clothing, but are inside ravenous wolves. You know, it's a, it's a good connection there. Uh, since it's the, it's the lesser of the two metaphors in this text, um, you might only save it up if you've exhausted the the other angles of this lesson in, in other recent years uh, to kind of give some variety to how you preach the, the text year after year after year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the greater metaphor is the tree one. The tree produces the fruit. Uh, and, and for that, you know, the, the greater context would be Matthew 12, uh, 33 to 37, which I'll, I got it pulled up here. So I'll read that quick. Uh, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, that's a very helpful uh, section of greater context to uh, shed light on uh, the trees and the fruit here, showing once again that the doctrine is the primary fruit, uh, even mm-hmm. more than the than the works. Because as we could look at, you know, the Mohammedans have many civilly righteous, good-looking works, right? They're against a lot of things that our law would be against too, mm-hmm. but their, their words condemn them. 
because they reject Jesus Christ. So th- this section especially fills in some of the gaps in our own lesson here, right? Especially the, it, we are talking about judgment day, whereas in Matthew 7, he just says on that day. Well, which day is that? Well, it is judgment day, obviously. Uh, this section makes that, or Matthew 12 makes that much clearer. So as a Christian, yeah. uh, a Christian will speak and act in accordance with repentance and faith in God's grace. Uh, and that's why it's not just, it can't just be the deeds or primarily the deeds, because many of the other false religions of this world will have deeds that look good or look close enough to what God's law would uh, command us to do or command us not to do. But it, if it's not proceeding from faith, it's sin. And and so the Christian will speak and act in repentance and faith. An unbeliever will not. And, and I, I think we got to deal with the hypocrites in this lesson too. Uh, hypocrites can only fake it for so long. And the proof of that is when Jesus says that, you know, the one who is forgiven little loves little. And so a, a hypocrite who wants to, to pretend to be uh, a Christian and says the right things in church, it will catch up to them usually in their deeds because if you are forgiven little, you love little. If you're not actually repentant because it's just something you say at the beginning of the service, and then you don't actually believe that God's mercy forgives all your sins, and that that love will grow cold. Yeah, the I guess the the difficulty is in our day, the um, uh, true doctrine or true Christianity has been co-opted by you know the world's definition of what love is or the world's definition of what nice is and so many of our people have been been uh and i think to a certain extent some of our clergy as well and not just from our our own church body have been co-opted by those understandings also and it sounds kind of biblical but it isn't and so how does the faithful preacher actually delve into this and say, you, you know, you're going to know them by their fruits, uh, but you know, do, do you pull a Jesus and say, you have heard it said in days of old to be nice, um, but I tell you, or you have heard it in days of old to, you know, that love is love, uh, but I tell you, how do you help them really begin to make those definitions so that they are actually recognizing the fruits as the 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 fruit that is appropriate from that particular tree or so that they have so that they're operating with the right definitions does that make sense yeah i'm not sure how often the the pastor can get into that level of weeds in the sermon as opposed to individual pastoral care situations maybe uh, that mm-hmm. that may be the place where you you do have to then unpack with the the true and proper use of Walther's distinction of law and gospel. Is this person a recalcitrant sinner uh, who has been deceived and misled into thinking that you know grace is cheap grace that doesn't actually have repentance and fruit in keeping with repentance? Because mm-hmm. uh, that's the other place where we hear fruit most most talked about is you know bear fruit in keeping with repentance, yeah. um, and maybe going back to the beginning too, just getting people to wake up and see that the world has lied to you with this universalism that makes it think that makes you think that it's easy or even that everybody gets into heaven, and th- that's not what Jesus says. And so right. take a second look, right? Use self examination. Uh, to examine yourself, and if you're if somebody's struggling, then that is the pastor's job to walk them through that and to say, "Look, this is the evidence that you are not actually repentant, or this is the evidence that you are not believing in the gospel." And perhaps mm-hmm. in in our congregations, maybe we do spend an awful lot of time dealing with, uh, you know, the impenitent side as opposed to one of the other great revealing fruit of unbelief, which is unforgiveness. Right. How many people are just carrying grudges, even against their fellow parishioners, and will not let things go, and they can't serve together on a board because they can't get over something that was done? And uh, you know, even the, a, across circuits and district and synod, I mean, that's 
there's a there's a lot of a baggage underneath that that has serious implications, uh, especially if we don't yeah. deal with it. Yeah, and I think maybe the where where Jesus goes with this in in verse twenty, leading into twenty one and twenty two, you know, not separating these and and stopping at verse twenty, but actually seeing what he does uh, from nineteen to twenty to twenty one. There, are, that's the wake up call that we that we're kind of asking for. Is like, how do you get this across to people? How do you get them to see that? Well, first, you just got to make them think that it's serious serious enough to warrant such a look. And do you need a more stark warning than every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire? And that's divine passive, cut down and thrown into the fire by whom? By the God. Mm-hmm. For, from whom the hypocrites cannot hide. So wake up. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And and I think that's a great wake-up call, too, to remind the people this is not just talking about pastors, right? Matthew 7 is not just a admonition to pastors, but if you're a hearer in the pew, you're off the hook if your pastor lies to you and deceives you. No, this is everyone who says to me, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It gets into the excuses of the false prophets, but I think you got to put all their their hearers and followers standing right behind them saying, yeah, yeah, when did my pastor not absolve in Jesus' name? When did my pastor not baptize in Jesus' name? When did my pastor not give us communion with the words that Christ instituted? And yet there's a lot of ways that those can be false taught and uh, lead to abundant lawless evil fruit that they should, as hearers and as a preacher, recognize and and root out. Okay. No, I think that's helpful. I mean, I, I understand you can't do it all, but if we are asking them to judge based on fruits, they need to they need to have the at least the touchstone by which to understand what is in and what is out in terms of good and bad fruit. And right. And and that's I think the 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 small catechism on the Lord's Prayer I've referenced the first petition already. The third petition as well, when we get into thy will be done, uh, that's, you know, the answer, so to speak, to verse 20, uh, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And that's going to be what the fruit is to backfill the metaphor in uh, verses 17 to 19. Uh, What is the fruit? Doing the will of the Father. What is doing the will of the Father? Well, first and foremost in the small catechism, it's something God does and we receive, right? God Mm -hmm. breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. God strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. And, you know, those are the things then that you would use as your touchstone for people, uh, the word and faith. They've learned the small catechism. They've got to keep it. It's not a doctrine book you graduate from and put on your shelf. This is something you need to read and learn and continually digest as a means of weighing and evaluating your pastor and all the other false teachers that are in the Christian bookstore. I mean, hopefully you warn your catechumens, at least I do, that they're going to get a lot of bad confirmation gifts, right? Devotional books that are false teaching. The catechism will help them root that out, right? That yeah, they're gonna. They should be able to put those two things side by side and go. Wait a minute, that's wrong. This is saying that I do by my own will or reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, but I was told that it's not by my reason or strength that I believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, and come to Him. So I think the uh, the recognition there of of the importance of repenting over sin, the sins that God condemns in the Ten Commandments, and faith in the gospel, which anybody who's memorized the small catechism has on the ready, that's the touchstone. And and it's our own laziness or, or perhaps the arrogance of adults that think that there's something more than that and bigger than that. And so, you know, all this doctrine and life stuff is just too difficult. And if I like my pastor and think that he's convicted, uh, then that's enough for me. Yeah. So, uh, so the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So you had mentioned that, um, so that is made known by his word. And so that must mean that for us to do the will, it's, it is to at least begin with listening, right? So is, is yes, there a way in listen, which... Well, to listen and receive, right? I don't think yeah, we okay. want, uh, I'm not one of the Finnish Lutherans 
of the the Monarma school where it's you know it takes listening to that passive level. I think the confessions speak of it as a very attentive listening to actually listen, grab onto, cling to as a promise, uh, internalize and meditate on. So yeah. it, it's here. It's a very specific kind of hearing. It's not just yeah, I listened and walked away and you know. Then by the time I'm in the car driving home, it's out of my head and I won't remember it ever. No, th- this is yeah. No, this is this is every. This is a very involved listening that we're talking about. Yeah, this is every parent's distinction. No, it's not that you didn't hear me; you weren't listening. So, um, you know, when 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 the kid says, "Oh, I didn't hear you tell me to do that," you, know, you say, "No, it's that you weren't listening to me." So, so. So I agree with you. I think it is an attentive, very active listening that not only hears what is stated, but then internalizes that and is incorporated into the the rest of the life. And so I'm curious. So if we are, if we're teaching our people in these texts how to recognize a true and false prophet. Um, perhaps you know one of those touchstones for them is: Do they actually listen to the word of God when it is um, spoken to them? Uh, so, do they seek to listen to? Do they want to listen to other preaching? Do they want to listen? Do they do they want to listen to their fellow pastors when? Um, their fellow pastors come to them and say, look, this doesn't seem right. Or even their own parishioners, when they say, look, the Bible says yada, yada, yada. And does he just ignore that? Or does he take time to say, I understand what you're saying, but I, I, I think this verse means something else. Is that, is that, a, is that a, a, I don't want to say measure, but is that a way to measure or to see the fruit, whether it is... Um, healthy fruit or or um, beautiful fruit or evil fruit. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think you're on the right track there. That's the, uh, the difficult thing for any pastor to get across to his people and for them to take him up on is that he is open to counsel and correction, even from them. Mm-hmm. And most of them, especially the very pious ones, would perhaps never even dream to challenge their pastor on some of these things. But that's a... Uh, a, a mis- a misguided uh, type of honor for the office. If you really honored the office and the pastor has said something or done something wrong that is worthy of rebuke and correction, then the honorific thing to do is to point that out to him lovingly, respectfully, but to actually do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, that's where we can, even in the sermon, perhaps provide examples. I mean, this would be an appropriate time for a, a, a pastoral anecdote uh, or a biblical example as well, like um, preparing for Bible study. Came, we're doing. I was doing the the lesson on Ahithophel, David's former counselor, counseling Absalom to go into his ten concubines, David's concubines in Jerusalem, and it, it, it specifically mentions that Ahithophel's counsel was like consulting the oracles of God. Yeah, well, in this case, Absalom should have said to him, "Are you crazy? That is condemned in God's law as an abomination." worthy of the death penalty. Uh, so to just go along with a trusted preacher, someone like Ahithophel, uh, to go along with him when he's clearly telling you to do something wrong is not honoring him. And it's, and it's, not, uh, it's not permission for Absalom to do what he does. And he does do, right. go through with it, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and that's that's the case for pastors. We, I don't, again, it's going to be hard for your your pious lay people sitting there and listening to ever deem themselves uh, wise enough or or correct in their interpretation enough to call the pastor out if he is wrong. Mm-hmm. But at the very least, the pastor must tell them that that is their duty. That is something that they owe their pastor uh, out of love for him and his soul as well. Um, to, to give that. And if you won't receive it, then yeah, that, that's that again, that's why you may even take the time to teach them what's in their constitution in this case about persistent adherence to false doctrine and whatever the language your constitution uses for gross moral mi- misconduct uh, to teach them that's an option and that yeah. they, they need to be able to recognize those things. And to, to do that, they need to be in the word 
daily, regularly, and in Bible study and in church, obviously. Uh, they won't be able to do it if they're not rooted in the Word. And that's really the 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 thing that's undergirding this whole lesson. And again, it, it is a very, at least so far, we've been talking about it very heavily in the law terms and in rebuke and correction and training them. Uh, the comforting thing underneath it all is that God's Word doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Right? God has not made His will mysterious. The fruit are not unknown. They're as common to you as the as the grapes and figs that he mentions. Uh, you know what a grape is and you know what a fig is. Well, you also know the Ten Commandments. And if your pastor is running around with, you know, strange women, that's clearly bad fruit. Right? And if your pastor is uh, careless and loose with the sacraments, that's a dangerous thing. And mm. And it's entirely appropriate for people to be concerned and lovingly questioning their pastor with things like, you know, pastor, we've seen a lot of baptisms, but then we never see him again until confirmation. Mm-hmm. Are you baptizing with the intention of teaching or are you not? And hopefully he is. And he can say, yeah, I've made a lot of calls and they're not, you know, I, I had hopes that they would repent and, and return to regular attendance at the divine service. That hasn't happened. Can we, you know, do, do you know them and can put in further admonition to that end? Uh, but the, absolutely, it's it's good and right when, when parishioners kind of notice something like that is not in accord with uh, good pastoral practice and to to be checking on that. And I, I don't think a, a pastor worth his salt would begrudge them that concern. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I think you're exactly right. Um, I have always, with my board of elders or deacons, whatever they're called, um, tried to uh, engender a um, kind of a review process you know, asking them, are there things that that you're seeing that I'm not doing that you think I should be? Let's talk about them. And if there are things that I, I am doing that you think I shouldn't be, let's talk about them. And then maybe there are things that I really should stop doing, or maybe there are things that they should learn to love that I do. Um, and creating a space for that kind of correction, I think is important for preachers to do that. Because like you said, so many times you have really pious people who don't, who might feel like something's off, but they don't want to say anything because it's their pastor, right? And and they've they've been taught to honor and revere their pastor, to pray for him, and to give him the benefit of the doubt, put the best construction on things. And you know, maybe the the sinful flesh says, "Well, in my weakness, uh, that's an easy way out too. I, I, it mm-hmm. would be a hard conversation to have. I don't want to have the hard conversation, so I'll just play the Eighth Commandment best construction card. <laughs> right. And that's never meant to be a cover for sin, right? No. So what does Jesus mean And I, in verse 23 when he says, I never knew you? Are, so it seems like you know, there are some reformed out there who would say, so this is, you know, obviously the preservation of the saints. They were never a saint. And, and so, because he, because Jesus says, I never knew you. Is this an, a time to talk about a differences in um, understandings of justification and sanctification, doctrinally speaking, or uh, among, uh, not or, but among the various denominations? Or how do we explain this? Well, I guess the, the counter to the Calvinist argument would be that it, it it does not logically necessitate that this is what would be said to every condemned person on Judgment Day, <laughs> right. um, especially when not everyone on Judgment Day will be claiming to have cast out demons in Jesus' name or performed miracles in Jesus' name let alone prophesy in Jesus' name. Um, so I, I'd say they're they're kind of overextending the example, and there's plenty mm-hmm. of other verses that rightly teach uh, the correct teaching. And, and, you know, Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower, they do believe and then fall away. Or, or the other verses about, you know, not shipwrecking your faith, and even just the warning to believers. All of that speaks mm-hmm. against the uh, their take on, once saved, always saved, and the the doctrine of the reprobate. Um, in, in this case, um, I, I think it's there. The way it's used and the way Jesus is talking is in the extremest terms possible. Um, mm-hmm. 
most of the people who say, Lord, Lord, are doing so by the Spirit, right? Because no one says Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. But there, here he's very clear also that there are those who will say, Lord, Lord, Kyrie, Kyrie, but he did not know them. And they were, mm-hmm. you know, either hypocrites or unbelievers or, you know, the, the case in Acts of people, uh, the sons of Sceva trying to cast out demons and the Jesus who Paul proclaims, uh, and, and even the demon says, yeah, I, I know Paul and I know Jesus. Who are you? <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think uh, here that's the react, that's Jesus's response to their claim that everything they've done was in accord with his name was, and, and, that, and that is the repetition, prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name. Right? It is repeated there for the emphasis. They're claiming to not only have his name, but actually to have knowledge of him. But by him saying, I never knew you, he's giving them the antithesis. They don't know him. Right? Yeah. They've used the words in Jesus' name. They do not know him, and he does not know them. And they are cast out from him. They were casting out demons, but he says to them, away from me. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the vocative workers of lawlessness. Um, and that might be an interesting thing to delve into if if we had the time um that you know it it's not antinomianism because that's not the greek word there but it is anomianism lawlessness mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, a loaded word throughout the new testament especially the epistles um and first john 3 verse 4 would probably su- suffice sin is lawlessness same word right. <laughs> yeah so i mean the reason i also brought this up then is if Jesus never knew them, and they're claiming we did this all, all of these things in your name, does it seem as though these t- people to whom Jesus is speaking that they're surprised, or or did they have an inkling of it? In other words, are they? Do they know their play acting? Do they know their false prophets? Do they know that they're wolves? And yeah, they're that, just acting the, the opposite. Thing about it. Yeah, there's. Uh, you hear this in, in Trinity One with uh, the rich man in hell. Mm-hmm. He legitimately thinks that he was not given a fair chance. Right. right? That's why. He, that's why he's asking them to send back uh, Lazarus to his brothers. Ah, oh, if they had something that I didn't get, I wouldn't have been here. I mean, he's actually. That's part of the mystery of how you know those who enter heaven will have this eternal bliss and knowledge. Uh, and, and we'll, you know, just like Peter and James and John recognize Moses and Elijah at transfiguration, we're going to recognize people that we've never met before, but those in hell are actually still partly deceived. And I think that gets to the weeping and gnashing of teeth that they still think it's not fair. Um, yeah. and, and maybe that's where these, these hypocrites and false prophets are, are sitting there going, well, hold on a minute, Jesus, ex opere operato. We did all the right works. We did the deed. We said the magic words. And yet there was no repentance and faith. They did not preach repentance and faith. They did not show fruit of repentance and faith. And, you know, he, he <laughs> the extremest possible terms, he doesn't say, yeah, well, you kind of knew me for a little bit. No, I never knew you. The yeah. judgment has been rendered. The The tree is chopped down and thrown into the fire. You, you don't ever get, when you're dealing with Jesus, you never get like half measures, do you? You always get, it's all, uh, and, and it's all, love and forgiveness, or it's all, uh, I never knew you, judgment, get away from me, so on and so forth. Um, is, there a, is there a reason behind that, that madness, s- seemingly madness, that there's never any kind of gray area? He always puts it in very stark terms. He doesn't use pastels, uh, but bold colors to delineate. Is this a... Um, is this something that we need to emulate in preaching uh, to to do those bold colors, or or do we need to do some uh, some work in the gray area? Oh, I think in in preaching and especially in teaching the catechism to young children, uh, you definitely stay with the black and white, the concrete. Mm-hmm. I think I don't know. I can't answer exactly what Jesus's reason is for always doing that. I would suspect it has to do with the fact that he himself has been appointed to judge the living and the dead on judgment day. And there's no room for wishy-washy preaching or decision-making there. 
yes, in pastoral practice, you will have ethical situations that are gray area, and there may be a legitimate case of sin boldly and believe more boldly. Um, But in preaching and teaching, I don't think you can really, especially in preaching where you don't have the time, I don't think you start introducing those if you don't have the time and ability to resolve those. That's one of the, I think, chief things we may lose track of in our preparation of sermons is that you shouldn't raise a question that you don't resolve. Mm -hmm. Um, because you already know by raising a question, you're going to put a seed in their mind that may actually distract them on a tangent where now they're no longer listening. If you don't resolve the question now, they're really going to be wondering. Um, yeah. So that, that's where you might admit that there are ethical situations or just say, this is a case where you would need to talk to your pastor. Or if you think you have reason that the sixth commandment doesn't apply to you, then you need to visit with your pastor, uh, before you have to answer to God on judgment day. That's what we're here for. But absolutely, in the preaching and teaching, you need to be as clear as possible. Uh, and I think that's where we have gone wrong. We've all gotten a little too excited about ethics. And if that makes its way into the catechism uh, and into catechesis, all that does is confuse young people. You're telling me yeah. not to commit adultery, but now you're getting into all these, you know, but if, but if this and if that. and that. No, just tell them you should not commit adultery, live a sexually pure and decent life, and what you say and do, husband and wife, love and honor each other. And when you don't, I'm going to call you out on it. And then deal with the the ethical cases individually. I mean, yeah. that's, I, I just, I don't think, I think it, 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 uh, it burdens the children. And I think your average hearer in the pew, especially, is going to be just as burdened. And if you've only got maybe 15, 20 minutes, if you know, you're still able to do that, I just don't think ethical questions get resolved that quickly. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I, so we're kind of coming up on the hour, but we did raise one thing of comfort. You had mentioned that God's word doesn't change, that it is always uh, always there. It's not capricious, um, that it never fades or fails. What other... <laughs> what other comfort can be derived from these verses, which it seems like aren't filled with comfort. Uh, yeah, it, it is a warning. I mean, the, the text is a warning. That's what Jesus calls it. So I don't think we want to to too quickly avoid that or people will kind of see that we're just kind of force-fitting a text into our preconceived Lutheran homiletical outline. Um, I, I guess the, the comfort is not just that God's word doesn't change, but that God's word is clear. Right? We Lutherans do believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, and our people need to be encouraged with that, and, and especially taught in, in the divine service and in Bible study that that is uh, expected of them. To read Scripture, it is clear, and by that, God himself will reveal the wolf underneath the sheep's clothing. Right? That yeah. God, God's word has not been hidden, and so those who try to hide in these offices will be revealed. Um, and, you know, I think that should be a comforting message to them, but you don't want to take the comfort and then undo the good ground you've made at admonishing <laughs> them to really weigh and evaluate everything their preacher is saying against the word of God. Not weigh and evaluate it based on do I like it or does it make me feel good, but weigh and evaluate it against the word of God. And if you really need the shorthand, weigh it against the small catechism and the table of duties. But mm-hmm. definitely, especially on such a strong text like this, I don't, I don't think you want to lose that. Um, and that is kind of the chief th- theme for preaching in this section is the false prophets, the false teachers, and becoming discerning hearers. Uh, yeah. That's the primary use of these verses in our confessions. Uh, multiple times it talks about congregations and hearers having an obligation to desert false teachers. Yeah. to leave them. It's almost always paired with Galatians 1, 8, and 9. So, you know, in your preaching, feel free to go there with, you know, even if an angel were to give you a different gospel, let him be anathema. So could we say that the comfort is, or there is comfort in the fact that our Lord does warn us against things that could lead us and desire to lead us astray, that he doesn't just let them happen but he tells us beforehand. And because he tells us beforehand, he is preparing us and building us up so that we can withstand it. 
Yes, there, there's always an implicit uh, note of gospel when Jesus is warning us, and that is the love that he warns us. Uh, yeah. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. If Jesus didn't love us, he wouldn't be warning us about these things. Um, right. And even how how Luther always dealt with this type of warning was that, you know, it is always following the gospel, right? The gospel has come. The good news of Jesus is there. Satan can't bear to hear it. And that's why he sends the false prophets, right? That the, the false prophets are there because the true teaching of Jesus is now present. And so when we ourselves are preaching the good news and and administering the sacraments according to Christ's institution, our people should expect to have false preachers and false teachings abounding all around them. Um, mm. And they, they, no, they shouldn't be wearied by that. God has provided them with his word and they've been duly warned and they're not alone, right? God himself continues to raise up true teachers and sees to that his word, the true word will never pass away. Very good. Are, are there any things that you really wanted to highlight and bring up that we, that we haven't talked about before we close? Um, well, if you, if you have preached on the false prophet angle year after year with this and you're feeling like a change of pace maybe do, uh, you can go the good works flowing from the new man route. But mm-hmm. you know, I think that that actually probably occurs more often in, in our lectionary that you'll have opportunities to teach that. Um, I kind of I want to finish with just my own regular admonition in, in preparing sermons and, and in this text in particular. Um, I found Ruse homiletics very helpful for having, you know, four qualities that a sermon needs in order to influence the hearer's understanding, emotions, and will. And uh, one of the chief things there is the is the convincing clearness of your theme and the whole sermon. And I think that's where the the metaphors and images in this text may actually be a temptation for us as preachers to get drawn away into them. You get drawn mm-hmm. away so much into the wolf and the sheep's clothing and the trees. Uh, that we fall into the abstract and esoteric instead of just stating it concretely. False prophets will kill you. False doctrine damns. On judgment day, the preachers and the hearers will both be judged. The preachers more strictly, but the hearers too will be judged. And to to believe false doctrine is sin. Um, A couple of the other qualities then that Rue, just to not leave that question unanswered, uh, the other ones that Rue highlights that I, I, I love to have in front of my eyes when prepping a sermon, I'd have pleasing elegance. Uh, and that's where you can make use of the metaphors uh, that are in this text. But be careful not to show your ignorance. Right? If you know, if you actually couldn't tell the difference between a fig and a thorn bush, maybe you steer clear of that metaphor at this time. Um, but yeah, paint the picture of Judgment Day. Talk about the the fact that the false prophets are not just innocent or naive; they are wolves. They are trying mm-hmm. to kill you. This is not minor stuff. Um, the third point for Rue is always to have force and energy. And yeah, if this text doesn't get you as a get you fired up, then you may not be a Lutheran, or you may need to either take a vacation or find a new vocation. Uh, but don't run wild with it, right? Uh, if if it's uh, if your sermon is at 100 miles an hour for all 15 minutes, as this this text could, de- I could definitely see Lutheran preachers, myself included, uh, falling into that trap. Uh, that too will kind of exhaust or weary the hearers. So, you know, moderate it, use good logic and uh, strategy and where you put the real emphases. And uh, the final thing that Rue also includes for a a high quality sermon is that it be popular, not in the sense of, you know, pleasing itching ears, but popular meaning you're using the, the language that the people of the church should know from the catechism, the hymnal and the Bible. And that's abundant. In, with this lesson, right? To pull out both biblical examples from Old and New Testament of false preachers who should have been rejected but weren't, or Paul's admonition to the Ephesian elders in Acts. Uh, you've got the second commandment from the catechism, the table of duties for preachers and hearers. Um, and, and what a great Sunday to pick some some solid Lutheran hymns about the Word of God and then even yeah. reference those in your preaching. We're, we're going to be busting out TLH 260 this week. Uh, oh Lord, look down from heaven, behold, and uh, and yeah, just to to pull some of those beautiful poetic images that'll really stick with people. That this is uh, 
This is about faith in God's word, standing firm on that foundation and not letting uh, the false prophets, the ravenous wolves, and Satan's messengers rob us of that good inheritance which God has so graciously bestowed on us in Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for your time, Matt. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, you will be willing to come on again, either for one of these or even to go through Roy's homiletics. That would be really a fascinating podcast to do. Yeah, sure. Well, let's set something up. All righty. Well, you take care, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you when we talk to you. Yeah, have a great day. Thank you.